we are still journeying through the Bible. Today will be a little different. Instead of taking a passage from another book, we're going to take a verse from another book, and we're going to expand on that idea throughout the New Testament. Um, it's something that, as Christians, uh, most of you are going to think, I-, I got this, I understand this. Uh, you may be confused why we're going to go over it, but um, I have found that in talking with people, this is something that comes up a lot. Um, with people who have barriers to the, to the Bible, um, this is something that, that a lot of people do hold. This is something that a lot of Christians, an idea that a lot of Christians hold. Um, and so I think it's important and relevant to us uh, to, to talk about this topic and, and get a little bit of a, a grip on it. And, and it does relate to um, the Christmas season a little bit. So <clears throat> today's message is called the Word of God. So let's, uh, before I get started, let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you. And Father, we do believe that this is your word. And Father, we thank you for giving it to us. Father, we thank you for speaking to us and revealing yourself to us and revealing ourselves to us and telling us everything in the past and, and how it makes sense, in our, our present makes sense, and, and, and what's coming in the future. But Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your son. Uh, Father, we thank you for your love that you have for us. And so, Father, we stand on your word. Help us to understand your word in this hour. Help us to to grasp it and to hold on to it and to never let go of it and to guard it. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So our passage today is going to come from 1 Thessalonians. But before we jump into 1 Thessalonians, I do want to read a little section from Acts because in it, we read about Paul going to the Thessalonians and planting the church there. And so since we have that tidbit of information, it sets us the background, it kind of lets us know about this church, I want to read it before we, before we jump in. So looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, it says this, After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he enters Thessalonica and immediately upon entering Thessalonica, he does his usual practice of going into the synagogues first and reasoning with the Jews there about the scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, that, I just want to say, I say this almost every week. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Now I have, you'll learn, I have a lot of favorite verses. 
Um, but that is just a, a very, a, one of my favorite verses. That Paul and Silas and Timothy and the other New Testament apostles and Peter and James, they had this reputation as people who turned the whole world upside down. That's a good reputation to have when you're going around preaching the gospel. That's, that, that means they were effective. They, they, everybody knew who they were, and they were making serious changes in their wake as they went from town to town. But they went to this town. They went to Thessalonica. Uh, there were a lot of Jewish people who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and immediately they began the persecution. And so they went to Jason's house where they were staying, but they didn't find them there. And so they grabbed Jason and the other believers in Christ, and they dragged them out and began to persecute them. This was the, uh, I don't know what word, environment. This was the uh, atmosphere, the temperature of the culture at this time. So if you became a Christian in Thessalonica, you could expect immediate and heavy persecution. And Jason has welcomed them, they said. They, they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. <laughs> as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival in Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. So this is, imagine the temperature of, of the culture there in Thessalonica. They weren't just content in persecuting the Christians there. They found out that the next town over, that they began to, to believe in Christ. And so they left their town. They left Thessalonica. They went to Berea to stir up and persecute Christians in Berea. So uh, the reason I'm reading all this and letting you know is because Paul later writes to the Thessalonians that he had planted the church there because he's so worried about them. He's so worried that the persecution is going to be so great that they're all going to jump ship and abandon their faith in Christ. And I just want to show you the extreme anger and hostility that, that, was, that was there in Thessalonica towards Christians. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So there's your... There's your background. So now Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and when he writes to the Thessalonians, in chapter 2, he says this. He says, this is why, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he said, this is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. Now, remember, we had just read that back in Acts 17, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God 
had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea. They came there too. And so then we see he's writing to the Thessalonians, and this is what he says about his message, about the gospel. And that's what we're talking about, the gospel message, the message about Jesus. He didn't come to Thessalonica and just preach Old Testament scriptures and not preach Jesus. Because if he had, if he just went to Thessalonica, he only preached Old Testament, he didn't preach Jesus, he didn't preach Jesus was the Messiah, they wouldn't have persecuted him. They wouldn't have came after him. They wouldn't have been talking about all that he was doing. We know that he's bringing the gospel message. And when he came to Thessalonica, he brought the gospel message. And then he says about that, when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God. So what is this? Paul says, Old Testament and New, he says, this is not a human message. What it truly is, is the Word of God. And this is where you'll encounter a lot of people. And you'll encounter people that are not believers, and you'll encounter people that are believers. They're going to say, well, I don't know how much we can really trust the Bible. I mean, we know that men wrote it. Men wrote it and, you know, people make mistakes. And from all the times it's been copied, how do we know it really says what it originally said? And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I was talking to somebody that I, I, I love very close to, and I was just shocked when, when, he, started, when he started saying a, a couple of things like this where he started saying, yeah, you know, we know men wrote it, and how can we really trust that it's really what it, what it originally said, idea? Well, there's a couple things. One, when it comes to the first thing, which is how can we trust that it still says what it originally said? Because that's, I think that's where you have to start. Before you say, well, is it man's plot or is it God's actual revelation? You know, did men make it up or did God actually speak it? Well, before you even get to that, you have to address, because whether they did or whether God actually spoke it or not, if it's not what it was originally spoken, we can't trust it, right? So the first step you have to take is, does it still say what it originally said? And you talk about, I know y'all, y'all have this, you're familiar with this idea of God miraculously preserving his word, right? Do you know that um, Islam makes that same claim? That Allah has miraculously and divinely preserved the Quran. That over the thousands of years since the Quran was written, that Allah has divinely preserved the writings of the Quran so that they have not been tainted, they have not been changed, and it is the only perfect book in the world. It's a perfect book. Because God, Allah himself has divinely uh, inspired and, and protected it. They make the same claim. How do you respond to that? Is there anything that as Christians we can, we can say? Because, you know, we can say, well, for, for centuries and centuries and centuries, our, our Holy Bible has been divinely preserved too. We believe that. But just to say we believe it doesn't go any further than blind faith. I just believe it's been, it still says what it used to say. 
Other than I just believe it, there's no way to actually stand on it. But see, that's where God's divine preservation, which I believe, I believe God has divinely preserved his word throughout the centuries. I do. That for all, throughout all time, from now all the way back to Christ and all the way back to Moses, I believe that the people on earth have always had a reliable copy of God's word. I believe that. But that's not the only divine preservation God has done. He also preserved in caves, many of you are familiar with Qumran caves, the just, just thousands of Old Testament manuscripts, thousands that predate Christ. We have an entire copy. Now, you've got to keep in mind, we're talking thousands of years outside in a clay jar in a cave in the desert. If you're going to tell me that that's not divinely preserved for us, I'm going to have a hard time believing that. But we have found so many that we have an entire copy of the book of Isaiah that predates Christ. Why is that even important? Because the book of Isaiah is the one that the New Testament authors were using so adamantly to show the suffering servant Messiah. That this idea that the Messiah was not just going to be a a king that was just going to conquer all the enemies and set up an earthly kingdom immediately. That the Messiah, as Isaiah said, was going to die for our iniquities. That the punishment for our peace was going to be laid on him. That the suffering servant was going to be counted with 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 the righteous and with the wicked. And that he was going to be buried. This idea of Jesus and the fulfillment of these prophecies, and we found these that predate Christ, that tell us that's still what we have. The writings that we have preserved and copied for thousands of years actually match these ancient manuscripts that we have found that God has divinely preserved. And it's not just Old Testament manuscripts. We have New Testament manuscripts. We have over 5,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts. Now, we don't have thousands of them from the first century. I'm not going to sit up here and try to paint a picture that's not true. The, the further back you go, the less we have. But we do have fragments that go all the way back to the and second century that match what we still have today. So what we found is all these ancient manuscripts that we found, they don't, we don't look at them and be like, wow, John, the gospel of John has really changed. That's, that's not what we found. We have found, wow, the gospel of John has really been preserved. These ancient manuscripts that we have actually help us to know what the scriptures say, and it's still true. Now, I can go through and talk about the little changes that have been made, but then we're going to have to get into a whole nother sermon. But let me just say, there was no, most of, most, you hear these statistics from atheists about all these huge number of changes that are different from the original manuscripts to what we have. Let me tell you what almost, I'd hate to give a number, but 90, 98 
98% of them. Let me tell you what it is. Today, we have a standard for spelling, do we not? When you spell a word, if I spell a word and it's wrong, you know it. You may laugh. You know I spelled it incorrectly. But in Jesus' day, when these manuscripts were written, there was no spelling books. There were no dictionaries that you used. There was no standardized spelling. They spelled words as they spoke them. We knew how to say the word, and so they, they, they had people who would write the words. And so you could have the same word with different spellings that when pronounced or said, it was obviously the same word. Just like we have different letters that make the same sound, right? I have a K and a C, and they both can do, they can both can say K. So the overwhelming majority of these changes are one and two letter differences in words. And, and that's the overwhelming majority of them. So what we have here that's different than the Quran and all these other books is that we see that for thousands of years, our word still says what it was. So now that that's off the table, we get to the big question. Did man make it up or did God actually inspire it? Well, I want to say the idea that God inspired these books and these writings is not something, and that's what we're about to talk about, is not something that we decided hundreds of years later that we believe now that these books are inspired because that's the other main idea that you, you get kicked back on. Well, Paul didn't believe that when he wrote these letters that they were inspired word of God. It's just the church after two and three hundred years had kept these letters and then they just decided, okay, we believe these are scripture. We believe God inspired these, but they, that doesn't mean they were actually inspired. No, 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 no. I'm going to show you from within, and here's one, from within the writings and the authors themselves, they believed that these were God's words, the word of God, scripture. And so you see the first example here, when Paul is talking to the Thessalonians, he tells the Thessalonians that his gospel message about Jesus, he believed himself that his gospel message was not a human message, but what it truly was, was the word of God. He believed that his gospel message was the word of God. Now let's, let's move forward. We're going to look real quick about how the Jews viewed the Old Testament. Paul said of the Old Testament scriptures given to the Jews. Now we just talked about what he said about... He, what he believed about his own gospel message, the New Testament message. But talking about the Old Testament, Paul said in Romans 2, 28 through 3, 2. Romans 2, 28 through 3, 2. He said, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. He's talking about the Jewish people and the Mosaic law. He goes on to say, so what advantage does the Jew have now, now that we're under a new covenant, now that we're under Christ, Christ has been made a new covenant in his own blood. What advantage does the Jew have or what is the benefit of circumcision? He said it's considerable, considerable in every way. First, and this is where we're going to stop. 
first, they were entrusted with the very words of God. Paul believed the Old Testament was not just a preserved writings from people who heard the word of God and we just have a historical documents that tell us about people who heard the word of God. He said they were entrusted with the very words of God. That the Old Testament were, in fact, the very words of God. You could go so far as to say, well, that was just Paul's opinion. I hate to even mention it, but I talked to a pastor a year or two ago. Not in, not in our association, but in this county. And I talked to him and he said, well, we know that Paul, everything Paul said isn't the truth. Some of it was his opinion, some of it wouldn't. We can talk later about why he believes that, but it just shocked me that he believed that. Because I thought, as Southerners in the Bible Belt, I thought that we just accepted that all of this is God's Word. But what I'm trying to tell you is that's not true. And it's not true for people you talk to. You may assume they believe it, but it's not true. And I tell you, it's not true for people in this county who are being taught by pastors that it's not true. And that's why it's so relevant to us today. Jesus, let's look at what Jesus said, because we say, okay, well, I, you know, if you don't trust what Paul said, quote, unquote, let's look at what Jesus said. Matthew 4, 4. He answered, Jesus said, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Would he tell you that if he didn't think you had the word of God? I mean, that would be pretty mean of Jesus to say, you can't live on bread alone. You can only find true life in God's words. Too bad you don't have them. But that's not true. He was talking about God's words. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. He goes on, it gets clear. Matthew 15, 6. He does not have to honor his father. He's in the middle of, a, he's in the middle of rebuking the religious leaders. He said, he does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. He's talking about the, the Mosaic law, the, the laws of Moses. He said, you have nullified the word of God. He didn't say the laws of Moses. He didn't say the regulations handed down by Moses. He said the word of God. Mark seven thirteen. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many other similar things which is the same thing. Luke 8, 21. But he replied to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. Jesus emphatically believed that, it, that they had a copy of the word of God, that they had the words of God. He wouldn't use that phrase if he didn't believe that what they had in the scriptures were in fact the word of God. He wouldn't use that phrase. He would say something else in the scriptures, in the, in the writings, in the, in the history. He, but no, he used the phrase, the word of God. Luke eleven twenty eight, he said, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And then the New Testament apostles about the gospel message. So now we're moving. Jesus was talking about the word of God, which they had from the Old Testament and that they had that he was revealing to them. But then we move to the New Testament apostles talking about the gospel message, not the Old Testament, the gospel message. 
The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. What do we know that they went around preaching? The gospel. The gospel. Acts 6-7. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. This the gospel spread, but they referred to it as the word of God. They believed that their gospel message were the actual words of God. Acts eight fourteen. when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And uh, Acts 11, 1, the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God, and on and on and on and on. I do a quick search of the word of God. I'm not even searching the word of the Lord. I'm not searching God's word. I'm just do a quick search of the word of God, and I'm just bombarded with verses. That was just a very common way that they referred. So coming back to Paul, he said that you received that you. You received the word of God that you heard from us. You welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. Paul claimed that the message he was presenting were the very words of God, not a human message, but a divine message that God himself spoke, which leads us to our next conundrum. Okay, we believe and we see that Paul really did believe that he had a divine revelation about God and that he was claiming that his message was the word of God. That's not uncommon throughout history for people to claim to be a prophet. It's not uncommon for people to say, God told me so-and-so, therefore I am a prophet. Now follow me and do what I say. Jesus warned there were many false prophets in the past, and there will be many in the future. And so I just want to name two that you're most likely going to encounter in your day-to-day lives. And that's why I'm mentioning these two. First, I'm going to talk about Jehovah's Witnesses. Their founder was Charles Taze Russell. Charles Taze Russell, in 1889, 1881, I think was his first book, But in the second book, in 1889, he began to develop his own prophetic system. It was called called The Time is at Hand, in which he claimed that 1872, the year 1872, not only marked the beginning of the seventh millennium since the creation of the world. So he said that, okay, God created the world and he worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh. And so 6,000 years have passed, and, and he, used, he used all these pyramid charts and all this stuff, and he preached that we have deduced from, from the Scripture, the timeline, we know that the, the, year, the seven, 6,000 years ended in 18, what do you say? In 1872. So starting in 1872 was now the millennial reign to 7,000 years. And he said, it not not only marked the beginning of the seventh millennium since the creation of the world, but that it was this chronological event that precipitated Christ's invisible return in October of 1874. Now, he claimed that Christ was going to come back 
We claim that Christ is going to come back, do we not? We believe. But when he didn't show up in 1874, he said he did come back. He's just invisible. We can't see. It's hard to prove something wrong. That's the whole point about Jesus saying, if you kill me and destroy my temple in three days, I will build it back up. I will lift it up again. Jesus said, if you kill me, I will rise back from the dead, not in an invisible form, because if if the apostles went around claiming Jesus did rise from the dead spiritually, nobody could prove him wrong, but that wasn't their claim. They claimed that he rose from the dead bodily. And so therefore, when you make a claim like that, it can be proven wrong. So all the Romans had to do, all the Jewish religious, religious leaders had to do was show the body. All they had to do was track down, because the Roman soldiers were very good at what they did. All they had to do was track down the conspirators, find Paul, find all these guys, and torture them until they get the answer to where they hid the body, if that's what they really believed. Point is, all they had to do was provide a body, but they couldn't. But Charles Taze Russell said, yeah, he came back invisibly in 1874, but then he went on to make claims like this. He said, God's judgment of the world began in 1878, Russell concluded and would end, end, God's judgment on the world would end in 1914 when God would destroy the governmental Gentile kingdoms, meaning the United States, uh, Russia, every single, Germany, every single worldly kingdom on earth. God was going to destroy them all by 1914, and he was going to begin the new, the new life on earth with, with those who, who believe in him and his followers. He would recreate the whole earth, and, and we would live new earth. And it would all be over in 1914. Well, as 1914 drew closer, Bible students, which were, were the Jehovah's Witnesses, that's what they were called back then, began to wonder whether Russell's prophecy should be altered. In response to one such question, Russell responded, We see no reason for changing the figures, nor could we change them if we would. They are, we believe, God's dates, not ours. And so Charles Taze Russell, he he got all these people to start following him, and he wrote this article called the Zion's Watchtower, and he would publish it, and he would have people take his publishings and go around and proselytize and try to reach people because he taught that they were the only ones who would be saved. He got all these people to follow him, and he kept making all these prophecies one after another, after another, after another. He ended up dying in 1916, two years after the prophecy didn't come to fulfillment. And so the next guy, Judge Rutherford, who, who was a, a judge, or they called him a judge, he was a lawyer, and uh, he took over the organization. It was an ugly takeover. And uh, once he took over, he changed some dates and made some new prophecies. And they kept getting more people to follow him. So that's one modern-day prophet that you're going to encounter a lot of people who believed, who Jehovah's Witnesses, and let me just say this because I have a heart of love for all Jehovah's Witnesses. I have tried. I have sat in my, my kitchen, my dining room. I have sat. I have invited them in. I have taught theology. I have tried to show them the truth. They, and, I, and I don't use this word lightly, so listen to me carefully. It is a cult. It is. You say, well, that was ugly of you to say. It it is. The Watchtower organization does not allow Jehovah's Witnesses 
to read any publication that can be even remotely religious except for what they alone publish. Jehovah's Witnesses, you cannot take this right here, which is a simple history with references, references to exactly where all the books that the Watchtower printed. I have old Watchtower books. I have books printed by the Watchtower. The Time is at Hand, you know that one, the 1914 that the, he wrote. I have The Time is at Hand at my house with a little bookmark in there for the page I want to use. I cannot hand them anything to read. They say, we can't read that. That's apostate literature. If it's not written by the Watchtower organization, they are not allowed to read it. That right there alone makes it a cult. It is complete control of what they know about their religion. And then I believe, I could be wrong on this date, I believe it was in the 70s, um, they sent out from the main organization, they sent out to all the kingdom halls across the country, to send in all their old library books in the Kingdom Hall. They confiscated all the books. They demanded that all the old books be returned, and then they disposed of all the old books. Now, you can still get them on eBay, but they're expensive and they're hard to come by because there's, there's not tons of them everywhere. So I have a handful, but I don't have many. It is a complete control of information. And the fact that they teach a different gospel than we believe, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the fact that they teach a different gospel is what makes it a cult. And their control of information and their control of them, and if they leave the organization, then they are disfellowshipped is the term they use. And if a Jehovah's Witness person, if a witness is disfellowshipped, no one who is currently a Jehovah's Witness is allowed to have contact with them. So if you and your spouse and your kids are all a member of the Kingdom Hall and one of you comes across the realization that this is not true and you leave, then your family is not allowed to talk to you. They're not allowed to have contact with you. We, I, you, can, you can go online and you can see um, videos of people who have left the organization who have told their own personal histories about how... Um, Grand, grandparents were not allowed to come to the, the, the nine-year-old daughter, a granddaughter's funeral. The granddaughter died, and they're not allowed to go to the funeral because they've been disfellowshipped. This is the kind of thing that makes it a cult. And I don't say it lightly. Jehovah's Witnesses themselves, everyone that I've talked to, everyone that I've had in my house, I love, and I yearn desperately to reach them and give them the true word of God. They have their own version of the Bible. It's called um, the New World Translation. And they go through and they change every single reference in the Bible that says that Jesus has any way says that Jesus is equal with God or that Jesus is God. They go through and change all of it because they don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe in the Trinity and they don't believe you should worship Jesus. They teach you specifically, do not worship Jesus. I love them. And I want to see them released from this control of information, this, this false information that leads them away from the true gospel. So please 
I, I pray that if you ever meet a Jehovah's Witness, I pray that you treat them with absolutely nothing but the best love that you can show them because they do not get good examples of Christian love when they go knocking on most Christians' doors. I'm just telling you, they don't. Most Christians, the overwhelming response Jehovah's Witnesses said is that when they go to a house where they know people are there, the number one response is they knock on the door and they pretend like nobody's home. It just eerily gets quiet all of a sudden and nobody comes to the door. The number two response is that they open the door and they say, I'm a Christian and I'm happy and close the door. They don't seem very happy. (laughs) What's sad is the overwhelming response is not, I'd love for you to come in. I'll fix your glass of tea. The overwhelming response is not hospitality and Christian love. So I pray that, that all of us will grow a sincere and deep love for all of our Jehovah's Witnesses, brothers and sisters who are on this earth, who are being controlled and are afraid to leave because they know that if they leave, it's going to cost them dearly because of the people they love that are in the organization. And that's not, a, that's not something to take lightly. Another one real quick, because I've run out of time, but we're going we're gonna to finish real fast. The other one that you're most likely going to run into is, is Mormons. That's the other big one that you're most likely going to run into. Joseph Smith claimed in 1820 um, that an angel named Moroni appeared to Smith and instructed him to go to a hill nearby his home where he would find golden plates inscribed with the record of the ancient inhabitants of America. Smith then translated them into the Book of Mormon and afterwards the golden plates were returned to the angel Moroni. Now, I read to y'all a few weeks ago, Hebrews tells us that, that even if an angel were to preach to you a message different from the message, the gospel message that's already been preached to you, they said, Paul said, let a curse be on that angel. We know that we can't accept new revelation that contradicts what's already been given to us. You can't accept a new gospel message that contradicts the gospel message that we know is historically accurate, that we know has been preserved, that we know when comparing to the ancient manuscripts that we have found, that still is accurate. We know this gospel is accurate. And so when someone claims to have received a revelation from a spiritual being and they preach a message that is contrary to this message, then we cannot accept that as true revelation. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you right off the bat. I don't believe we're going to receive any more revelation. I believe that the book is closed, that I don't think we're going to receive any more revelation to be added to any of our scriptures until Christ comes back. I don't. Now, do I believe there are prophets? I believe that. I believe that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit does gift Christians with prophecy. But I believe that all the prophecies that they make, just like we read in the New Testament prophets, remember in the New Testament prophets, we read that there was a prophecy that was made that Jerusalem was going to face a severe famine and that all the churches should begin a collection and an offering to be able to support their brothers and sisters who were going to experience that famine. And what happened? The New Testament said that it was prophesied and then the New Testament said it actually happened. And then we had another prophet that we read in the New Testament that encountered Paul and told Paul, when you, go, when you go to Rome, that you will be bound and you will be arrested and you will be hauled off and you will not come back. And that's exactly what happened. I believe that there are prophets, just like we read in the New Testament, that will prophesy things and can prophesy things into the future. 
But what you notice, they were not prophesying. They were not prophesying a new gospel. They were not prophesying a new way to be saved. They were not adding to or taking from the current words of God. They were just foretelling events that were relevant to the Christians in their day. And I believe that's true for any prophet today. I believe that if God gifts anyone with the gift of prophecy, that the prophecies that they make will be relevant to the church, to the body of Christ, but it will in no way contradict, add to, or take away from the gospel that God himself has given us by his own very words. And that's why we cannot accept the Book of Mormon. That's why we can't accept Joseph Smith's prophecies that, that clearly contradict and change the gospel message and what it means to be saved and who God is. And that, that you know, there, there, I, will, I need to say there are different branches, just like, you know, we have different branches of Baptists. Some Baptists believe one thing. Some Baptists believe something else. There are some Mormons who believe one thing. There are some Mormons who hold the other. One example, some Mormons, as Joseph Smith instituted, some Mormons practice polygamy. Some are against it. Some say it's not true. So I can't, you can't just make broad sweep with everything. But I will tell you uh, some, of the most, mo- some of the most controversial and, and contradictory teachings is that Jesus and Satan were actually brothers, was a good Mormon who became a god who was given an earthly planet and that if you become a good enough Mormon and move up high enough in the ranks, you too will be given your own planet to rule. And so when you start getting that far away from the gospel, you can no longer say, well, they're just another branch of Christianity. They're just another group who, who interpret the word differently. They're not a group that interprets the word differently. They're a group that has taken one man's claim of prophecy from an angel and have added it to the word. So they have the Bible, but then they have the other books as well. The Book of Mormon, the, 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 the what is it, the, the Pearl of Great Price. They have these additions. It's not that they're just interpreting it differently. They have added to it. And that's what separates them from Orthodox Christianity. So, how do I feel about Mormons? I love them. And if I've said anything up here that has given the impression that I don't, I have greatly failed what I tried to do today. I have tried to show, scripturally, this is why we cannot accept these false prophecies and false prophets. And therefore, we must try diligently to reach those who don't know the truth, who believe that these are true. The Mormons are told the way that they are to know if what Joseph Smith said was true. This is what they're taught. The way that they are to know if the Book of Mormon is true is that they are to pray and ask God to reveal to them if it's true. And what they say is, I was given a sense of peace that this book is true. That's how they know that the book is true. They are to pray, and the Holy Spirit of God is to give them a sense of peace. Yes, this is my word. That is not how we believe that the New Testament and Old Testament writings are true. We do not say, I just want you to pray And the Holy Spirit will reveal to you that these things are true. 
No, we have thousands of ancient manuscripts that we can compare this to those and say, is it still accurate? Is it still the same that it was then? Because Joseph Smith's claim was the New Testament was corrupted by the church throughout the centuries and the angel Moroni had preserved the true gospel message, preserved it on these ancient golden tablets that were buried and that it's the true version of the gospels and that what we have here is not what was originally written. This was not the original gospels. These have been corrupted by the church over the centuries. That is Joseph Smith's claim. But instead of saying, well, I believe and I feel and I have peace that this is still the accurate gospel, we actually have ancient manuscripts that we can compare and say, no, according to those thousands of years written earlier, these are the accurate ones and we can't find Joseph Smith's tradition anywhere. It doesn't show up in all the ancient manuscripts. That's how we know that this is the word of God. And how we can count on and rely on the word of God. Because I'm going to tell you as your pastor, I don't want to stake my eternal soul on something that's not true. I I, I don't. I have no desire to blindly lead myself into a faith that's not true. And I have zero desire to lead anybody else into a faith that's not true. I want to know Can I count on the fact that this is true? Give me every every argument you've got. I want to hear any argument you have. I want to hear what you got to say. I want to hear what the atheists have to say. I want to hear what the Mormons have to say. I want to hear what the Muslims have to say. I want to hear what everybody's got to say because I want to look up and figure out which one's true. And if you haven't done that, I, I, I would encourage you to if it strikes your fancy. To, to, to look any of this stuff up. And I'm telling you, the evidence is overwhelming. The evidence that we know that this is true and that those are not, the evidence is overwhelming. The problem is when you have organizations like the Watchtower that tell Jehovah's Witnesses they're not allowed to look into what other, other people have to say about their religion. They're not allowed to. They're not allowed to go online and look at YouTube and look at the videos that, that other people have to say about their religion. They're not allowed to. And if they, if they get caught doing it, then they can be disfellowshipped. Why? Because if they leave the organization, they could lead other people to lead the organization. We, as Christians, are not afraid. Islam, if you take the culture in, a, in, in areas where it's, run, it's, it's governed by Sharia law, In those cultures, if you talk against Muhammad and say he is not the prophet of Allah, if you say anything derogative towards the Quran or Muhammad, you're killed. Christianity, not so. We're not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of what other people have to say because we can defend our faith under any grounds, under any argument, because it's actually true. And we have so much evidence to support that. I don't have enough faith to place, place my faith in anything but the Bible. 
I, I haven't always been that way. I used to have the same questions. I used to wonder, how can we know? I used to wonder, has it been corrupted? I used to wonder, what about these other religions? What about these other prophets? I used to wonder about those things. But you spend time digging into them, looking into them, and you'll find that the, the, the evidence is overwhelming that stacks for Christianity and stacks against all these other beliefs and religions. So we won't have time to finish. But, Let's jump to the last one. Why is this relevant to Christ, uh, Christmas? Well, it's relevant to the people that you're going to encounter because you're going to predominantly encounter Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons in this area. But it's relevant to Christmas because the, the Scripture says the Word, God's Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed His glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, that the Word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ as a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago. And every word he spoke was the very words of God. And he believed the Scriptures were the words. I do, I do have to say one more. Peter, the Apostle Peter, said in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, talking about Paul, Peter said about Paul, he speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say as they also do with the scriptures. You notice that? Peter didn't say people are twisting Paul's writings to their own purposes, for their own selfish desires, as they do with the Scriptures. Peter the Apostle said they're doing that as they do with the rest of the Scriptures. Peter believed Paul's writings were considered Scripture. Peter believed Paul's writings were considered the words of God, just like they believed that the Old Testament writers, that Moses' writings were the words of God, and Jeremiah's writings were the words of God. So in their own lifetimes, this is not something the church invented hundreds of years later, in their own lifetimes, the apostle Peter quoted this as scripture, and Paul said, for the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. He quoted two passages of scripture, one from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and the other. You know where it's found in the Old Testament? It's not. It's not in the Old Testament. Paul quoted, the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. You know who wrote that? That's Deuteronomy. Luke. Luke wrote that. Luke said, remaining in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer for the worker is worthy of his wages. These were the words of Jesus. The gospel of Luke recorded the words of Jesus. Paul refers to Luke's gospel as scripture. Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. They believed in their own day that their writings were the words of God 
and worse scripture. This was not something that was invented hundreds of years later. All right. And then the word himself became flesh and dwelt among us. So what does that mean? It means Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's what that means. Merry Christmas. God's word became flesh and dwelt among us and served us and loved us and humbled himself before us and died for us to save us. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was truth. Jesus is truth because he's the word of God. This is what the New Testament believers believe, the New Testament writers believed about these writings. They believed they were scripture. They believed the Old Testament was scripture. Jesus believed the Old Testament was scripture. Jesus believed his own words were scripture. What do you believe? There's no lack of evidence. The question is, what do you believe? Do you believe Jesus was the Son of God? Do you believe that salvation is found in him alone? Are you willing to stand on it? Are you willing to live by it? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for coming to earth. All of this would be meaningless if you didn't. All of the, all our lives, everything that we do, they would, we would have no hope. We would have no future if you didn't come and offer yourself as a perfect sacrifice because there was no other perfect sacrifice. You alone could save us, and you did. And Father, we thank you. And Father, we, we, we may not understand why, but we can see clearly your great love for us. And Father, we know that you don't just love us, but that you love every single person on this earth, those who know the truth and those who don't, those who have been lied to and deceived, and those who have embraced you and turned their, their hearts wholeheartedly over to you those who believe that the words that you have given us are your words, and those who believe that these are not your words, that these are just man-made words. Father, we know you love everyone, and you desire everyone to come to faith in you and to turn from sin. Father, we, we pray that we just magnify you and glorify you this Christmas season, that we appreciate truly the gift you gave us to come to earth as a child to live that perfect life for us, to die for our sins, and to raise from the dead, defeating death, and saving us from death ourselves. We love you, Father. We want to love you with the rest of our lives, and we want to reach out to our brothers and sisters. We want to reach out to our neighbors. We want to reach out to our enemies with love. Help us do that, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand with us and join us for the last song? <clears throat> Merry Christmas. I'm no prophet. I tell you that a lot. I don't want you to start thinking I make prophecies because I don't. I'm no prophet. But I got a feeling, and we're all allowed to have feelings. I feel this is going to be a great Christmas. I feel this is going to be a great year. Let's love everybody that we come across. Let's show them all the love we got. Saved, unsaved, it don't matter. God wants them to spend eternity with him. God's made them in his image. 
no matter how we feel, whether we, if they are Christians, whether we think they're a great representative of Christ or an awful representative of Christ, it don't matter. Because we're awful representatives of Christ if we're just going to be honest. Every one of us. Let's love. Let's love everybody we come across. Let's show them all the love we got. And don't forget to tell them, Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, this season would not be merry if it wasn't for you. This season would not be happy if it was not for Christ. Father, this season is not about gifts. It's not about commercialism. It's not about a man in a red suit. It's about you in a red-stained robe that you gave your blood for us. Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.